0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast is Professor Francis J. Beckwith. He is Professor of Philosophy and Jurisprudence at Baylor University. Welcome to Beeson and to our podcast. Thank you for having me, Dean George. Professor Beckwith is one of the leading uh, scholars in the world today as it relates to perhaps is the most pressing moral issue of our time, certainly one of them, and that is the question of the dignity and the sanctity of human life. He's written a book published by Cambridge University Press, Defending Life, a Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice. And I want to ask you to say a little bit about that book, why you wrote it, and what it says. Well, several reasons why I, I wrote it. One, uh, I wanted to put down
1: in print a an analysis of the pro-life position in, in a way that those that don't share that position can understand it and appreciate it. I had published a book 17 years or 14 years earlier called Politically Correct Death with Baker Bookhouse, which uh, did remarkably well, mostly among evangelicals and a few Catholics. Uh, but as I moved more into the academy uh I began I began realizing that that there really wasn't out there a definitive work published by a major academic publisher. So uh, I actually spent a year at Princeton University in 2002-2003 working on this and uh, after i had completed the manuscript i was encouraged by one of my graduate assistants to submit it to cambridge university press <laughs> i was actually aiming a little lower thinking that there was no way that they would accept it and he said no this is this is this is something that i think uh, uh, an imp- major academic imprint would would accept so i sent it to them and they sent it out to a couple of outside reviewers and i was pleased to to hear that that they had accepted it, so uh, the, so the purpose was to, was to was to, was to offer uh, that type of analysis to an audience that ordinarily would not hear the pro life position. What I also wanted to do was to help equip pro lifers uh, so that they could better understand the legal arguments. Uh, one of the things that's often forgotten about the abortion debate is that one could be against Roe v. Wade and still be pro-choice, mm-hmm. which is a position that you don't often hear anymore because of the association with Roe v. Wade uh, as as equivalent to being for abortion. So I wanted to show my readers that, that there were a lot of flaws in Roe v. Wade. Uh, and I wanted to equip pro-lifers, but I also wanted to show people that weren't, uh, let's say, supportive of the pro-life position that that Roe v. Wade was not a really well-reasoned opinion, that it had deep flaws and that uh, the basis for this was really uh, jurisprudentially not very sound.
0: Talk about that a little bit. Uh, I know we all would recognize Roe v. Wade as a landmark decision uh, from 1973, uh, but say a little bit about what what caused Roe v. Wade. What what was the precipitating factor in it? And then how do you see it as flawed uh, legally?
1: Sure. Uh, a couple of a uh, couple of events uh, in American history, all legal events, were the. Uh, with the reason why we get Roe v. Wade. Well, what happened in the early 1960s or mid-60s, there was a case called Griswold v. Connecticut, where the Supreme Court said that Connecticut's anti-contraception law it was a law that actually uh, forbade the buying and selling of contraception, but didn't actually didn't actually ban the using of it, just buying and selling it, uh, was unconstitutional and violated the right of privacy. Well, when you get to uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, you already have in place now an understanding of reproductive rights And so the Supreme Court now is faced with a statute in Texas that says that abortion is prohibited except for in the case of the mother's life. So the Supreme Court now has to deal with a form of reproductive, a form of of preventing reproduction called abortion. Because the problem with abortion is that unlike ordinary contraceptives, as understood in Griswold you didn't prevent conception what you prevented was a life that already was in existence from coming to maturity so the court had to deal with this little issue and uh, pardon the pun mm-hmm. uh and the court uh this is where the court really runs into some deep problems it it had to justify abortion as a form of con- a type of contraception or birth control while at the same time taking into consideration the unborn as 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 a possible uh, bearer of rights, so what did they do well they 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 uh, they did a couple of things that I think showed that the opinion is is deeply flawed. One, they said that uh, that the anti abortion laws that were around in the nineteenth century uh, and they were in vir- virtually actually in every state eventually uh, were were there because the uh, legislatures were trying to merely uh, protect women from dangerous operations, and now that abortion is relatively safe there 's no need for that uh, law or those laws, therefore right to privacy kicks in. Now they have to deal with the unborn, who, who are they? Who are the unborn? Uh, well, uh, Justice Blackman goes through uh, the Constitution and says, you know, they, they never talk about prenatal persons in the Constitution. Well, well, they never talk about tall or short people either. So, I mean, I, the fact that a particular sort of person is not mentioned doesn't mean it's not protected. But leaving that question aside, uh, he, he says it's not there in the Constitution. And then he goes on to say that, um, you know, uh, no federal court has ever considered the unborn a person, so therefore we don't have to. And Texas uh, does offer us uh, the facts of field development as evidence of the unborn's humanity, but as we all know, theologians and philosophers and physicians all disagree about when life begins, so therefore we're not going to make a judgment. So the court essentially passed the buck on the question of the unborn's personhood. And in doing so, ironically, actually uh, did something, I think, far worse than simply declaring the unborn non-persons. What they said was, we're not even going to deal with the question, we're going to permit people to exercise their rights, even though they could be killing persons,
0: Mm.
1: which of course is worse. I mean, it's better for them to have said, it's not a person, even though I think that that would have been a mistaken conclusion. So that's how we get Roe v. Wade. It's a decision that's based on faulty premises, and we wouldn't have gotten it if it weren't for the Supreme Court in Griswold v. Connecticut saying that there was a fundamental right to reproductive privacy. Now, that's not to say that one couldn't come up with an argument for reproductive privacy apart from a judicial opinion. That is, one could do it through the legislature or whatever. But the problem that a lot of people have with the way the court thinks on this matter is it opens up the door for what we get in Roe v. Wade, and eventually in a subsequent opinion called Casey versus Planned Parenthood where the Supreme Court basically upholds Roe v. Wade.
0: Now that was 37 years ago when this happened, and taking the long view of what has happened in the abortion debate and policy actually in our country, uh, talk about where we are today and what, what are the pressing issues on this, on this issue.
1: You know, it's difficult to say. I can just tell you from my own experience as a professor and Seeing what i 've seen over the last couple of years uh, in the public square, I think it 's clear to me and it 's clear i 'm not the only one who, who thinks this way that the pro life movement has made tremendous gains in changing minds, and I see it in my students I, I taught for uh, for several years uh, in fact, it was my first teaching position at the University of nevada and i 'd say virtually all my students were uh, when I began in one thousand nine hundred and eighty nine very strongly pro choice they supported abortion rights. But by the time I left in 1996, I'd say that there, that, that, that even the pro-choice students were doubtful about their position. That is, they always, uh, announced their position with a disclaimer. They would say things like, okay, I'm a for-woman's right to choose, but I don't think abortion is good. Now, that's a real shift, because in the 70s and 80s, the arguments that were being put forth was that abortion is good. It helps people. And mm. now the There's argument Expansion is, of
0: women's freedom and all right. that. That's yeah.
1: right. And now it's, it, it's a tragedy that we must tolerate. And so I think that the pro-life movement has largely won the intellectual debate. Uh, now, it, it hasn't affected laws necessarily. And, and until the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, we will not have a sort of public nationwide discussion on this issue. In fact, one of the criticisms of Roe v. Wade from a political point of view is that it really shut off debate. That is, unlike other issues where, uh, in fact, the physician-assisted suicide issue in particular, uh, in that question, the Supreme Court refused to find a right to suicide, and you know what? We actually had a conversation about it, and it was, and what resulted from it was the hospice movement yeah. uh, in which people towards the end of life could be cared for, and, and I think only one or two states have allowed physician-assisted suicide. Uh, not that that's good from a Christian perspective, but the point is that at least the court said we're not going to declare a right in this area. Let's have a conversation. And I think what Roe v. Wade did, it, it distorted our politics tremendously and wa- and wound up ending a conversation that we should have had. The good thing, I think, for the pro-life movement, because we didn't have the benefit of legislative action, is that we were actually forced to have to develop A kind of public argument that uh, changes people's minds. And in the mid-1990s, the uh, partial birth abortion debate, I think, had a significant effect uh, upon upon the public's perception of abortion. And I don't think that the other side has really recovered from that.
0: It seems there's a lot of activism now at the state level. I'm thinking earlier this year, the state of Nebraska, for example, passed uh, a law. Which uh, undoubtedly will be challenged, but it seems to advance this in a in a more uh, pro life friendly way that 's right, so t- tell us about what that decision was, and is that likely to be uh, reenacted in other state legislatures
1: yeah this is this is the one where they they declare the unborn a human person yes. there's a number of these personhood statutes right. there 's one in Colorado that I think barely barely lost or lost uh, uh, a couple of years ago yeah I think what the, there's interesting actually disagreement among pro lifers about whether this is a good strategy because uh in one sense I think that it that it, that, that what it does it forces judges have to deal with the fundamental question that Justice Blackman would not deal with, namely, is the unborn a member of the human community? Uh, on the other hand, if the judiciary is loaded with people that are never going to be sympathetic to that argument, no matter how well you frame it, uh, then do you really want the Supreme Court issuing an opinion that says, the unborn are not persons? That is so. There's an interesting strategic or tactical question here. The other way that a court could actually deal with this is to say, uh, yes, Nebraska has a right to make this judgment, and uh, therefore, in Nebraska, abortion can be legal. And then, effectively, you'd have the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, I understand that with the with the court could take this sort of middle position we're not going to say whether Nebraska's right or wrong about the unborn but they have a right to make that judgment then effectively Roe v Wade is is gone but but I think there are there are a lo- number of different questions here is it is it the right strategy will it really work mm-hmm. i mean in some ways you almost have to use a kind of uh, uh analysis of this like you do in just war theory that yeah, is you know right. uh can, you're able to you know okay the, the the method or the process is just but will it really result in what you plan for it to uh, result in, and if it, if not, maybe that's not a good idea. And that's really a prudential judgment. But but I do think it shows that there is a uh, a grassroots support for the yeah. pro life posi- position that you that you've never had uh, for quite some time.
0: You mentioned that younger people may be changing their mind. I've noticed this myself when I've spoken on this issue on college campuses, and I wonder if technology isn't a big part of that. The fact that we have sonograms now, and we have all this technology that allows us to to see uh, with our eyes a great deal of the, that is going on uh, prior to birth, uh, this must be having something of, of a consciousness-changing impact.
1: That's right. I, I think that that has a lot to do with it. In fact, uh, a friend of mine in Nevada, who's running for the U.S. Senate, uh, she changed her mind on abortion. She used to be. Uh, Pro-choice and has become pro-life as a consequence of the technology. Uh, now I'm not going to mention her name because I'm not voting yeah. <laughs> for her. I'm, I'm, I can't. I'm not. I'm supporting her primary opponent, but I, she's still a good lady, and and I'm delighted that she changed her mind. But that's an example. Uh, I also think something else is going on here, and and this is it's sort of paradoxical. You're right about the technology, but I also think there's a resistance among young people uh, to treat their relationships in a technical fashion, that is to say, you know, we're going to look at children as commodities that we produce. And so uh, you have an entire generation of children uh, who are now young adults who grew up in an age of divorce and abortion Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, a kind of disfigured family, and they don't want that for their own families. And so I have found actually uh, among young evangelicals a, a, a resistance to birth control. Mm-hmm. which is another sort of interesting phenomenon. And, and I wonder if it's sort of part of that whole kind of re- rejection of
0: the sort of technocratic Enlightenment family. This may be the first generation that is really beginning to reap some of the things that were sown in, in Roe v. Wade and the whole prior sexual permissiveness era that produced it. And I wonder if it has to do with and a
1: little bit of environmentalism, too. You know, one of the things about the environmentalist movement, even though I have my, my my disagreements with it, is that there is a sort of respect nature. And I wonder if that, you know, there's, I don't know if there's no hard date on this, but I've always wondered whether that may have something to do with it as well. But, but clearly there is
0: a change. Well, let me ask you a historical question, because very often in, pro-life discussions, the analogy is made between the campaign against abortion on demand and abolition prior to the Civil War. Uh, what do you think about that analogy? Uh, is it valid? Uh, and how would you extend it or qualify? I, I,
1: well, as all, as with all analogies, uh, they're not perfect. I know you almost have to say that uh, um, you know, it's like uh, one of my students said once, uh, I don't like analogies because they're different. <laughs> and I said, well, that's what that's analogies an are. If it's the <laughs> yeah. same thing, it's not an analogy, right? Uh, I-, I think the analogy on one level does work in this sense. Uh, both cases were cases in which a segment of the human community was treated sub-human, in a subhuman fashion. Uh, you also had the question of property. That is, uh, the the unborn are treated as property, so were The slaves. Uh, You also had a group of citizens, mostly religious citizens, in fact, who who believed they had a moral cause. And that their beliefs were grounded not only in what they saw with their own eyes, but also in their, their theological tradition. Now, of course, there are differences. Uh, the difference is that obviously child, childbearing is, is intimately connected to only one half of the population. Whereas in the, in the days of slavery, anyone could own a slave. So, I mean, there is a, there is a, a distinction there, but I do think that there are similarities in terms of the same sorts of moral arguments. Uh, in fact, one of the great, uh, uh, portions of uh, of Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's debates with uh, uh, Stephen Douglas, one of the things that Lincoln had done was in preparation for his debate with Stephen Douglas, he put together some notes in which he offered uh, a rebuttal to each one of Douglas' arguments that he thought he was going to make, and one of the arguments was that uh, since uh, uh, the slaves were intellectually inferior, therefore they they, they didn 't they were really property and and lincoln 's response on paper was uh, well, in that case, then the next person that comes along who 's smarter than you can enslave you and His point was that these these uh, bogus uh, standards of human equality can be applied not only to slaves but each one of us, and that uh, what we are as human beings is not dependent on uh, certain achievements. It's because of who we are, not what we do. And I think that that has
0: some similarity there. Now, another historical episode that's often referred to, of course, is the Third Reich and the fact that during that awful period in human history, certain individuals were classified as unworthy of life and were treated uh, very uh, recklessly. Their lives were taken. They were used for experimentation, medical experiments, and so forth. And we know the result of, of the Holocaust. Uh, say a little bit about that Third Reich period and its devaluation of human life in terms of where we are today. We don't. A lot of people who are pro-choice re- resent that analogy, yeah. and I'm not saying again it's a perfect one either. It certainly isn't. Uh, and yet, it seems to me again there's a common devaluation of human dignity and human life that does apply then as now. I, I think there's something to
1: that analogy. I, I don't think it it, it it works entirely simply because uh you had a a level of of viciousness and inflicting of pain that that you don't have in most abortions but that doesn't make it obviously you know, morally benign by any means. Mm. I obviously believe abortion is unjustified homicide.
0: And now, but, just to interrupt yeah. you, there's also this evidence that there is sentient life oh, pre-born. Pre- oh, so infant, before they're born, That's embryos right. actually feel. That's right. In
1: about eight weeks or so, it's, uh, my, my point is not to obviously to diminish uh, uh, that. But the point is, that, no, not a perfect analogy. Having said that, though, uh, we have to look at how the third, where the Third Reich got its ideas. And you look in the early 20th century, and there were physicians already talking about. In fact, there's a famous article that Patrick Dare at Clark University translated from German to English called On Life, Unworthy of Life. Mm-hmm. And uh, several years ago, I was speaking at a pro-life conference, and I read a, a, a Two sentences from that, and then I read two sentences from a contemporary bioethicist, and I asked my the audience which one was the contemporary bioethicist, and they all picked the Nazis yeah. <laughs> or the or the, the paleo Nazis yeah, or the. Yeah. Uh, but my point was that ideas have consequences, and that even though uh, there's no doubt in my mind that most people that are for abortion rights would never dream of of reinstituting. Uh, the concentration camps or those experiments. The point is that those sorts of ideas, once you put in place the idea that a human being can be used for the benefit of another because it is not a full-fledged member of the human community, you have put in place ideas that could very well lead to that.
0: Now, the Southern Baptist Convention, of which I'm uh, an ordained minister, uh, shortly after Roe v. Wade actually passed a resolution supporting abortion yes. rights. It's since, of course, reversed that, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, The Roman Catholic Church has historically stood very strongly for Sanctity of Life, and you're actually here today at Beeson Divinity School to participate in a forum, a public forum we're doing on the Sanctity of Life, supported by both evangelical ministers and the Catholic bishop. It's one of those issues where Christians across denominational lines can find a place to stand together and speak out together. Uh, Talk about that—the kind of ecumenism of the trenches that uh, this debate and this issue elicits.
1: It, it is one of the one of the great untold stories, I think, in American political and uh, uh, religious history in modern times. Uh, you know, one of the one of the. Uh, uh, secular myths, and I and I, you know secularists have myths just like other people have myths. Is that, is that if we can get the religious people to disagree with each other, or uh, that eventually they're going to disagree with each other, or they're going to, and eventually it's going to lead to sort of infighting, and their unity will be undermined. And it turns out though that uh, in the abortion debate. Precisely, just the opposite right. has happened, yeah. Yeah. and all the predictions that oh, the Catholics and Protestants aren't eventually this is going to fade away because you know their differences are going to be accentuated. And clearly, there are some Protestants and Catholics who don't like working with each other, but they're few and far between. Uh, what we have found, uh, I think, uh, in at least in in our common cause, is, is that we're, we're we have a common we have a common enemy. We also have many common beliefs, but we have a common enemy, and that common enemy. Says that our theological beliefs are not knowledge, and that they cannot be employed uh, as uh, as part of our uh, work as citizens. And so, all of a sudden, Catholics and Protestants, say, wait a second! You know, we're citizens too. Can't we employ our views as part of a framework for better understanding what it means to live the good life? And the secular say no. And I mean, so that, what you've had, uh, it, it, I think, by this kind of culture war motif it, it, is, a, it, is that Protestants and Catholics have had to actually work together, get to know each other, and we have found out that we have a lot in common and that, in fact, uh, uh, that the way in which the cultural issues are framed today, they're framed in a way in order to exclude us. And so, in, I mean, it's, it, it's been... For, for me, having been on actually on both sides mm-hmm. of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the divide, I, when I first began working in pro-life uh, ministry, I was uh, an evangelical Protestant and worked with Catholics and Protestants and uh, still obviously do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think it's, 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 it's a remarkable and, and, and largely untold story. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it's largely untold is that it doesn't fit the secular narrative. The secular narrative, we're supposed to be disliking each other. Yeah. and uh, that's not happening. Um, in the 60s and 70s, abortion was said to be a Catholic issue.
0: Yes. Right. And
1: now uh, now that narrative is false, and so now we're told that it's a religious issue. And yet there are some people that are pro-life that aren't even religious, mm-hmm. and I don't yeah. know where they're going to go with, with after that. But, uh, yeah. but, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it has brought people together.
0: When you published your book, uh, you were an evangelical Protestant, and the course of that... You reverted to Catholicism, in which you were born and brought up. And when the book came out, uh, you were a practicing Catholic. Yes. So you're a good example of (laughs) (laughs) how this issue transcends some of those uh, boundaries and brings us together in a way that allows us to give a a wholesome, winsome, united witness uh, for Jesus Christ in this world. So Defending Life, a Moral and Legal Case Against Abortion Choice. My guest has been Professor Francis J. Beckwith. We're delighted to have you with us at Beeson Divinity School, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, Beesondivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.